Hello. Hey, Papa Bear. Is this little boo-boo bear? Hey, how's it going? This is my dad, and I called him up to have him tell us this story. Do you remember the time when we visited the dean's office at my university? Well, that was a nightmare. Yeah, so first of all, why were we trying to go to the see the dean? Well, I think I got denied for, like, taking too many courses at once. Like, I was trying to take, like, 25 credit hours in a one semester or something. And so my dad was really upset with the school for not letting me do it. This is crap. Let's go down there to the dean. You said, really? I said, yeah, we'll get these classes approved. Yeah, so I jump in the car with you because yeah. I'm living at home still. So I jump in your car. You drive us down to the school. Yes. We get to the university. My dad doesn't know the school layout very well, so I have to show him where to go. We go into the offices where the deans are. He sees the name on the door that says this is the dean's office. I kick open the door to make my presence. And the man behind the desk. I don't know if he stood up and then sat back down, but he did look a little terrified. And I just went into my little tyrant, you know, how dare you stop education? Somebody wants to learn. How can you say no to this? This whole time I'm saying, Dad, 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 and I'm tugging on his shirt. He turns and tells me, Quiet. This is how you do it. And then after, I don't know, five minutes into it, was it you or the professor, the dean? I kept telling you. I was like, no, hey, Dad, Dad, Dad. I know, and the dean said, I have nothing to do with the IT department. I do anthropology or something. You're in the wrong office. And I went, oh, sorry about that. Yep, that's my dad. The guy who busts down a door, yells at a person for five minutes, only to realize it's the wrong door and the wrong guy. I was red from embarrassment. But I don't think my dad gets embarrassed for things like this. It's weird. The things he gets embarrassed about are wearing glasses or a helmet. But it didn't stop me. We went right into the next office unannounced. And this worked. He ended up sorting it out somehow, and the dean let me take the extra classes. But the point of this story is that breaking down the wrong door to yell at the wrong person is a big misunderstanding. And sometimes hackers also face big misunderstandings, too. These are true stories from the dark side of the internet. I'm Jack Resider. This is Darknet Diaries. Support for this show comes from Veronis. Guess how many files the average employee can access on their first day of work? 17 million. And most of them, they never use. Those files are what these ransomware gangs steal and hold hostage. Because companies will pay to get that back. That's why ransomware is such a threat. The blast radius is huge. 17 million files? There's so much valuable data that's easy to get and they can make money from. Do you wonder what your company's ransomware blast radius is? Veronis does a free cyber resilience assessment and tells you how many important files a compromised user could steal and whether anything would beep if they did, and a whole lot more. They actually do all the work, show you where the data is open to, if anyone is using it, and what you can do to lock it down before attackers get inside. They also can detect behavior that looks like ransomware and stop it automatically. 
You can even get a break on your cyber insurance. If you want to learn more, visit varonis.com slash dark. That's spelled V-A-R-O-N-I-S, varonis.com slash dark. All right, so let's jump in and meet our guests for this episode. Uh, my name is Justin Wynn. I'm a senior security consultant with Coal Fire Systems. I am an offensive penetration tester who specializes in physical security, which often entails social engineering, uh, physical exploits to gain access to facilities. Yeah, my name is Gary DiMicurio, and pretty much mirror everything Justin said, except I'm a uh, managing senior and I run the Bellevue office in Washington. I know they said it quickly, but the important part here is that they're both penetration testers. Yeah. I've been at Coal Fire for six years, and I probably did the military another three. So I've got about nine years of experience of physical pen testing. Right. And I, I've been with Coal Fire for over four years, so physical penetration testing for over four years. And they've come here today to share some penetration testing stories with us. Now, even though these two live on opposite corners of the U.S., one Florida, one Washington State, they team up together on assignments all over the U.S., and the assignment is typically like this. A company will call up Coal Fire, the company that Justin and Gary work for, and ask for a security assessment. And they might want someone to test their website to see if it's secure, or do a password assessment to see how strong the user's passwords in the network are, or conduct some compliance checks. And this is all to make the company more secure. But a few years back, a financial institute called up Coal Fire to ask for a physical penetration test on their branches, basically to test if the building is secure. And then if somebody were to get in the building, what kind of things could they take or steal or get access to once inside? We had a, a pen test that was in, uh, was in my home state of Washington, and we were, we were working with, we were working with a, uh, a financial institution. That one may have been up to seven locations. Um, so different uh, branches of this financial institution where they wanted us to gain physical access. So, I mean, they they wanted kind of everything full scope, whether it's during the day or at night, show us what, what can you do, what systems and which people can you can you uh, compromise to, to gain access to things that you shouldn't normally be able to touch. Right? But the big part about that particular client was they always wanted a, a very... I don't know, I guess blatant or gregarious or outgoing in your face kind of social engineering aspect to it every, every year. They always wanted some, some, I don't know. I know what yeah, you no, no, no. A big part of that was testing the employees. Yeah. So like kind of come in here and do social engineering and like give our employees the chance to respond to you and see if mm-hmm. they'll follow procedures or pick up on what you're trying to do. And if they'll shut you down in these situations. Now it's extremely important to know exactly what the rules of engagement are. What is in scope and what isn't in scope? What does the client want and what do they not want? Because if there's a no-holds-barred pen test, you can drive a tractor right in through the front door and scoop up all the computers and take off with them, which is something that some criminals actually do. So you want to make sure everything is agreed on by everyone. Yeah, so so with our company, like we have the contract, the scope of work, um, the rules of engagement, and it's, it's kind of like the initial outlay for information that we provide to the client. And they'll fill it out and say, oh, generally, like, this is what we're looking for. Like, these are things that may be in scope, um, lockpicking, things like that are acceptable. But really, a lot of the meat and the details comes on the scoping calls that we'll have mm-hmm. with the client. So we'll hop on the phone with them after they fill this out or we'll review that contract charter. 
Um, and we'll go through and we say, okay, so you mentioned you do want lock picking. Let's explore that a little bit. What are you, what are you looking for? Like what kind of scenarios, what kind of pretext do you want? Do you, have, do you want us to show up as pest control and see if we can just blatantly lie our way through and get in there? Or are we doing something really hardcore or is it even less, less sophisticated than that? Can somebody just walk in and, and walk behind the teller desk and, and jack in a USB or something like that? This is a really important call because these guys are going to break into these financial branches, which is burglary. But because it's all been outlined and agreed on, it's 100% legal. But still, Coal Fire has a lot of lawyers that looks over all these contracts to make sure everyone and Coal Fire is acting within the law. So the scope of work was agreed on, and the only people in this financial institute that knew these guys were going to break into the branches were the VP, the head of security, and the head of the physical security team, like the security guard's big boss. So Justin flew into Washington to begin the work, and they looked over their goals. We were trying to get unfettered access to a branch of, of a financial institution is what we were trying to do. Because if they can get into this branch and start looking around, they might be able to spot any security issues, things like client info exposed on someone's desk or a computer unlocked when someone's not there. Or they can look for passwords written on a notepad. And if they find any of this, it'll all go into their report. So as they go up to this first branch, they use Google Maps and walk around the building and they notice an air conditioning unit. So they decided to exploit the AC to get into the first building. Gary called up the branch. We had we had uh, contacted him on the premise that there was uh, some part in the air conditioning that was out of warranty or out of service and that it didn't cost them anything because it was a known issue with the air conditioning. We were going to come out and do it for free. So now that Gary prepped them, Justin went in. Justin actually went in with a uh, with the, the outfit, the clipboard, and the service order, and the whole bit. And he just tried to uh, get them to allow him to do whatever he needed to do: right. work on the air conditioning, test the test the filtration systems, et cetera, et cetera. And they let him in, man. And people ask me all the time if I can send them any hacker tools. A clipboard, man. All you need is a clipboard. That's your hacker tool. Because imagine if you go into a conference room and see some guy in coveralls with a name tag and a hat, and he has a ladder set up like right behind the door, and he's got tools all over the table, chances are you're just gonna leave him alone in that conference room. So Justin used this trick to get in, and at the very least, now he can wander the halls to get a layout of the place. He can look to see what kind of alarm system they have, or what kind of locks on the door they have, or maybe he just unlocks a window or a door so that he can use it later that night. Anything is possible once you get in there and you're free to walk around, even if you're acting like you're just checking the filters. What Justin found out while he was getting into the first branch was that there was daily security code. So every day they rotate this secret phrase that if you're internal in the company, but you can't verify if somebody's calling you up over the phone, you can relay this code to them and they know, okay, you're on the internal network, you're one of the employees, you have access to this code. This was good intel collected at the first branch. So later on that night, they go over to another branch, but this time it was at night, after the branch was closed in the dark. Um, So we were able to um, bypass entry into that branch location and, and gain access to the internal network. So now that they had access to this branch and this network, they get access to a computer and start looking for the software that assigned that daily access code. And they found it. So they waited in the branch until after midnight for the code to change over to the next day. And bingo, 
Now they had the security code for the next 24 hours. What might they be able to do with this code in the next branch they try to get into? Well, the next day, they hit up the third branch. And this time, they have more knowledge than they had from the first branches because they know the layouts of these places better and they have that magic code. So they head in, posing as someone there to do work on the building, but for some reason, they didn't act the part well enough and their cover was blown. And they call our bluff and they say, hey, you're not really with train. This this wasn't according to, to our, our processes. Um, what, what's going on? And we're like, okay, we're going to come clean. We're with the security team. Here's the code of the day. And we write it down and we slide it over to them. And they say, okay, great. And they, they take their time and they verify. Yes, this is the code of the day that we're using. Um, we, we understand, believe that you're part of the security team here. Um, so, so we're going off that text. So at that point, we had relinquished one level of our, of our uh, social engineering attack. And at that point, we were identified as internal security teams. This is common with pen testers. If they get caught, they don't just like give up everything and say, okay, you got me. They try to figure out a lie to stay in the building and keep doing their assessment. Or they might just lie to try to get away without being caught, actually caught, right? Like you're stopped but not caught. So these guys weren't with the internal security team, but because they had that code, that was enough to believe they were. So from there, um, Gary was great. He kind of occupied the employees and he's talking about security and like great processes. Congratulations, guys. Um, while I was going around the rest of the branch and plugging in devices, taking taking pictures and unfettered access to some of the private areas in, inside that branch. And we were definitely do the magician where we, we want you to look one way and the, the hand that you're not paying attention to is doing something totally different. So I was like, well, here, let me tell you about what I did and how we were able to do this, how we were able to do that. And so the entire time I was talking to them, I kind of corralled them all. Oh, hey, can we get some of the tellers in here so I can show you guys some of our techniques so somebody else doesn't do this to you? And they're like, oh, absolutely. And they had bought it hook, line, and sinker. And I I just had them in a big group, basically. And the whole time I was in a group, uh, Justin was walking around taking pictures and videos and and getting, uh, you know, what what model of, of... like alarm system that they had, yep. what, what the types of safes that they were, uh, that they were using, and just every bit of information you could possibly need in order to, you know, hit the bank at night if you were an actual criminal. All the all the information that you would need uh, to do something nefarious after hours, right? Because we're not, obviously not going to steal money. From you. They successfully got out of there without giving their real names or identities and with all the intel they needed. Then progressing on to the next branch, um, we, we'd been in constant contact with the client. They understood. They're like, okay, you know, they're taking some L's here, here and there. And they're like, well, we want you to do an overt um, test and like just kind of see if this other branch will catch it and, and catch on to you. Um, so we kind of pulled the same pretext, went on site with, um, you know, your, your air conditioner has a failing part that's going to pump carcinogens throughout throughout the air vents unless we get in there soon. Um, so they're like, OK, on the phone. And like I, I thought I, as soon as I hang up the phone, I talked to Gary. I'm like, dude, I'd, like she said yes, but it was a no. Like it's it's not going to work out. So we go on site. We, we know we're probably pretty much already burned. Um, so Gary was in the car. He was going to act as a regular bank user. Um, and I'd gone in just a little bit before, um, in my vest and everything. They, they kind of shut me down. So I I go in and I'm like, Hey, I'm here to replace, you know, air air conditioning stuff. I'm the guy. And she's like, no, no, you're not. Um, so, so please leave the building. Okay. We'll see you later. Um, and Gary had a pretty, pretty funny, um, insight into what, what happened as soon as I had let the doors close and I left that branch. 
and so I got to hear everything that they said before I actually approached them. And and they were like, get that guy's license plate. He's he's a criminal, et cetera, et cetera. I, they the jig was up. Like 100%. They they sniffed him out from the get go. And so I was like, well, all right, let's let's give it a shot here. And so I walked up to her and I said, hey, you know, we're from we're from the internal security team. We're just doing an internal audit. She had none of it. None. She's like, I don't care who you say you're with. I don't believe anything you're about to say. So I come back in. So like we knew we were burned. Gary was in there. He's like, he he texts me. He's like, yo, come back inside. So I come back inside and the lady's on the phone with the police. And it was pretty obvious because I'm like, hey, just want to talk to you again. And she's like, "Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And like talking to the police and the police on the other end of the line are like, are they in there right now? And she's like, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And going through those motions. That's so right. so right. I'm waiting for her to end up on the call. Um, and within five minutes, uh, police had responded to the scene. So police at that point walk into the branch building, um, confront us. And at that point, we we come completely clean and we give out our get out of jail free card. Well, mostly. Most, mostly, mostly completely clean. clean. So I tried what we had one last trick up our sleeve, which is we still had the code of the day. So I walked up and I said, hey. You know, I do have the code of the day. I actually am employed by the bank. Would you like to check my code of the day? And she looked at me and she goes, I don't care if you have the code of the day. I don't want you in my branch. You guys need to leave, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she just went on this rant about she didn't give two flying leaps about what identification we have. We could have had legitimate ID. We could have worked for the actual bank. She did not care. She did not want us in there. She wanted nothing to do with this. And then while we're having conversation with her, the police show up. She was a, well, we're, again, we're guessing here because we don't know the actual, the her actual thought process, but she was the assistant branch manager and the branch manager was gone. So she took her job very seriously being in charge of the bank and she just didn't trust anybody. She was just one of those people that you actually want working for right. you that was highly paranoid. Right. She did a great yeah. job handling that security incident. So yep. at that point, after she had gone through the couple layers, we presented the get out of jail free card. Uh, she ended up calling one of the point of contacts um, and, and she, she did great. So she looked up his his information in the internal systems, gave him a ring. She said, do you know these people? Or she said, are you performing a test at our facilities? What she said. He said, no, I'm not. And she said, that's what I thought. She hung up the phone. And then as we, we'd already handed over identification and stuff to police officers and showed them the get out of jail free card. And she said, I just talked to my boss or the head of security. He says he has no idea who you guys are. And I said, you better call him back and let me talk to him because that is absolutely not true. So we started sweating a little bit. And immediately the phone rang, she answered her phone. And what had happened is he had a brain fart or he forgot or something. And he just said, he, he was doing something else. I think he was, he's preoccupied. He just said no, completely forgetting we were on site. And that's why he called it back immediately. He's like, oh, wait, 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 no, 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 no. Yes, we have contractors on site that are testing you. Yes, they work for me. Their names are Justin and Gary. They're absolutely supposed to be there. And then her demeanor completely changed after she got the okay from them. But the, 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 the part that I think that's important here is the entire time, the officers on scene, they never overreacted, never freaked out. They never, they never actually really questioned us. They were just like, okay, something isn't quite right. And I think there's a miscommunication, but they never overreacted. And we're like, these guys are trying to rob a bank. These guys shouldn't be here. They, they, mm-hmm. there, was, there was never any worry or doubt that, that we were actually doing something wrong. Higher 
the entire time and the way they portrayed themselves was, there's obviously some confusion here. Let's see what the confusion is. After the head of security vouched for them and told the police that it's their job to test the security by breaking in, everything calmed down. The branch manager was happy. And because of that, the police were happy and everyone was free to leave. Um, more often than not, a police officer can look at you and tell if you're up to no good. It's, it's what they do every single day. And they, they can, in, in my opinion, I think they're really good at telling somebody who's trying to get away with something and somebody who's being honest with them. Every scenario we've ever been in where we've talked to police officers, they've been extraordinarily professional and actually really helpful. After find out what we're doing and the job that we do, they usually have a lot of questions. For us. Like, oh, hey, this is really kind of cool. You know, tell me a little bit about it. And then we'll usually ask them questions such as, you know, hey, did we handle everything okay? Is there anything we could have done a little bit better? You know, if, if we run into this scenario again, where where could we improve our, our interaction? And and more often than not, you know, the cops are like, actually, no, yeah, you guys did really well. You were very professional. I guess the most important feedback I've gotten from a police officer is, is no, you did exactly what you should be doing. Don't ever let us come in and get you. You know, like, like the fact that you came to us and you presented yourselves to us before we had to come get you is exactly what you should do in every scenario. And that was it for their penetration test engagement. The client was happy with all the findings they dug up and was impressed with how clever they got into different branches. And the client did what they could to fix all these problems and even invited them back a year later to do it again. But that was not the last time they had a run-in with the police. And when we come back from the break, we're going to hear about what happened to them at the Iowa courthouse. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger podcast. Here's a clip from one of his episodes. You're about to hear a preview of the Jordan Harbinger show, where I speak with the infamous Firefest's Billy McFarland from inside federal prison, where he's serving six years for fraud and on the hook for $26 million in restitution. This call is from William McFarland, an inmate at a federal prison. Is this the new Billy that we're hearing, or are you the same Billy that tried to pull off the Fire Festival? When I think about the mistakes that were made and what happened, there's no way I can just describe it other than what the fuck was I thinking? I was wrong, and I hope now that I can in some small way make a positive impact. Once you knew that the festival wasn't gonna go as planned, why didn't you call it off? So a lot of people don't know, but the decision to cancel the festival was made when I was told that three people had died at the event. Thankfully, no one was actually physically hurt in any way. But up until the last second, I believed incorrectly we could pull it off, and obviously I was wrong. We had something called the Urgent Daily Payments Document. Essentially, it was a list of payments that we had to make that day, or else the festival couldn't proceed. In the couple of months leading up to the event, it went from a couple thousand dollars a day to a few million dollars a day, where I had to wake up at 9 in the morning, find $3 million by noon, and then make the payments by 4. You had a big vision, I mean, it was huge. And you got so close to something great that everyone wanted to be a part of, and people still want to be a part of it. I have to wonder if there's gonna be a Firefest version two. I assume you wouldn't call it that, but are you thinking of doing something similar? If there's anything that makes you want to create and build and do, it's being locked in a cage for months or years. Are you good to come? For more with Billy McFarland, including lessons learned on the inside and his plans once he's served the time he agrees he rightly deserves, check out episode 422 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Iowa Judicial Branch is the State Department of Iowa. It's a government facility, and specifically they handle the court cases and such within the state of Iowa. 
So it was the Iowa Judicial Branch that called up Coal Fire and asked the company to come and do a penetration test on the courthouses themselves. It was, it was a full-scope red team penetration test, so it included things like external te- pen testing, uh, web application testing, internal testing, which was to be done after we had gone on site to see if we could gain access in their internal network um, and kind of like do like a real-life scenario. Like, can you gain access to our facilities? Can you plug in a uh, what, w- what we call a drone, a remote device, to be able to access that network later once we're off-site um, and then conduct the internal network penetration test from there? And throughout the whole time, we're contacting with the guys at uh, iowacourts.gov. Justin and Gary get assigned to conduct the uh, physical penetration test on the courthouses together. They've been working together for four years on doing physical penetration tests just like this. So they're used to each other and do good work together. And actually, I have a copy of the rules of engagement here in front of me. So let's see. Okay, yeah. So this is for the Iowa Judicial Branch. And they're specifically asking for a physical penetration test at five locations. There's a judicial branch, the Polk County Courthouse, the Dallas County Courthouse, a juvenile justice center, and the criminal court area. Five locations, and the window to test the security on these buildings is between Sunday, September 8th, and Friday, September 13th. So they had a week to do this assessment, and this was last year, in 2019. The rules of engagement list out a ton of things. Do they have permission to tailgate behind someone to get in? Yes. Do they have permission to dig in the dumpsters? Yes. Does Coal Fire have permission to use lockpicks to get in? Yes. Does Coal Fire have permission to plug USB drives into computers that they get access to? Yes. Does Coal Fire have permission to disable alarms? No. And the goal here looks like they're trying to get into the building, plant rogue devices, look around to see if there's any security problems like unlocked computers, passwords written down, that kind of thing. So, okay. The rules of engagement seem pretty clear. So that gets filled up before we're on the call. And then as we're going through that with the client, the project manager is taking notes in there. So you may see things like, okay, at the JD building, we discussed with the client, floors three and four are specifically off limits during daytime hours because there was going to be uh, the Supreme Court convening and they obviously didn't want us interrupting that. So right. part of that, we're discussing with the client on the phone. Yeah, during the daytime, do not touch, do not go on floors three and four. And then we enumerate with them. We're like, okay, well, like, what if we're in there after hours? Like, what, what do you want to see from there? Is that open access? And like, uh, yeah, that'd be more acceptable. But you know what? Let's let's play it safe and just show us to see if you can breach the the, the doors that enter on that floor. So the contract will say something like, okay, J bil- JB building floors three and four are off limits. And like, you you see how big those fields are in that table. So it's it's really like the bare information that the project manager wants to put in there. Um, And we have a good understanding with the client of what they're actually looking for. So actually, this rules of engagement document I'm looking at is 28 pages long. And this field he's talking about is super small. All these things you cover on the call in great detail only get jotted down with a couple words. It's not fully documented in the scope of work or rules of engagement. And these conversations are so granular. If, If we were to take and actually take the conversation that we had on the phone and write it out and put it in a contract, the contract would be this, we, 100 we pages work. long. Yeah. It, it, the, the, amount of, the amount of discussion that we have on what it is exactly they want us to do, it would, it would be unfeasible as far as a uh, rules of engagement would be concerned. Right. And, and, and so, again, that's why we have a phone call. That's exactly what we have. So we can say, this is what we understand, what exactly you guys want, and then we're all on the same page when we show up. Like we're going to be there at night. And the client was like, yes, we want you to focus on after hours testing. So 
a lot of that stuff, unfortunately, which we never would have predicted or seen seen coming at us, um, we, we didn't capture in that document, which would have been great if we did. But The Iowa Judicial Branch has actually worked with coal fire before to do other penetration tests. So everyone seems to agree on what should be conducted and what's expected here, and an agreement was made. And they create what's called a get-out-of-jail-free card. And this is a slip of paper that lists all the people who hired coal fire to do this penetration test. This is their information security officer, their chief information officer, and the infrastructure manager. These are three people who worked in Iowa's judicial branch who contracted coal fire to do these tests. And this get-out-of-jail-free card has their names and phone numbers listed with their signatures. So if these guys get caught, they can ultimately show this to get out of any real trouble. Uh, we touched down Sunday night. Um, we, were, we entered in a, a facility. So I don't want to provide too many details that haven't been um, already disclosed. All right, fine. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to go into every detail of what happened because I don't want to expose any actual vulnerabilities over there at the Iowa County Courthouses. But let me give you an idea of what they're capable of. First of all, these guys mentioned that they sometimes use an under-the-door tool. So let me tell you what this tool does. It almost looks like a bent fishing rod. It's long, four feet, metal rod, and it has a string on the end. And this is for doors that have a handle that when you push down, it opens a door. So you try to slide this tool under the door, and then you pull it up using that string to get it close to the handle. You try to hook it onto the handle from on the other side of the door. And when you do get it hooked on there, you pull down with both the string and the rod and it pulls the handle down and it opens the door. It's actually pretty simple. And on top of this, Gary is also really good at lock picking. So he'll certainly have these in his pockets and ready to use them whenever he needs to. But with lock picking, it might take you a while maybe 10 minutes, maybe 30 minutes to get a lock open. So it just takes more skill and time. If you're talking about my favorite, because I find this a lot in commercial buildings, is going to be um, crash bar doors, right? Either the ones that come down like the old high school gym type doors or the ones that you just push and go into the door itself. Uh, Von Duprin. Yeah, thank you. They'll have, they'll have the latch on the inside of the door. So you can't really use an under-the-door tool. They make some tools if you have doors, uh, double doors that come together without the, uh, what's it called in the middle there? Uh, the mullion. The mullion, is that what it is? Yeah, there's another term for it too, but yeah. there's an inner, there's a bar that runs in between the doors where you're not supposed to be able to insert tools. So, right. so you'll, you'll, you'll see a lot of those doors that don't have that bar that, that separates the doors. Those are really easy to get into. You just you, you stick a tool inside, you turn it to the left <laughs> or the right, and then you pull and it opens the door. What we've come up with that, that we like to use that's absolutely my favorite tool that is literally in my backpack right now is a cutting board. It's a really, really thin plastic cutting board that I bought from Amazon and I, I cut a notch in this in this uh, cutting board. And so for crash bar doors, especially the single ones where you can't see anything, you stick it, you stick it through, uh, you stick it through the, the door uh, on the edge of the door and then and once you, you feed it through the door, you pull it down until that cutting board rests on top of the latch. And then you'll you'll apply pressure down on that latch and you start pulling the cutting board toward you outward from the door until that notch that you cut falls on top of the latch. So now what you've got is you've got the back half of that cutting board on the other side of the latch on the inside of the door and you pull. And if that latch doesn't have the dead latch, Latching it properly, you will open the door every time. 
So typically when we're talking about door bypasses, we're inserting a tool uh, through whatever method that we can, whether it's an interleaving double door system so you can go in between the doors or if there's a gap underneath the door, insert a tool there and start manipulating some mechanisms on the other side of the door, whether that's the Von Duprin crash bar or the uh, latching mechanism itself or some peripherals like a request to exit sensor. But I, I can, what, 80% if you had to put a number on it? 80% of doors can be bypassed by bypassing the latch. Right. Just by manipulating the latch itself, you can get into 80% of facilities. And and just coincidentally, can you tell us where you guys are this or what you guys are doing this week? This week, we're doing three two-day courses comprised of physical access control systems, alarm bypass techniques, and then safe manipulation. So really kind of an action-packed week for us. That's all the kind of juicy James Bond-style stuff. So you can imagine what kind of bag of tools these guys have to break into buildings to carry out assessments like this, right? I mean, they've got so many things, I'm surprised the TSA even allowed them on the plane. So even though they can't get into specifics about what tricks they use to bypass the doors of these buildings, you can take a pretty good guess that they've got many options they can use to get into each door that they've run into. So it's pretty much we walked up, um, assessed the perimeter and like kind of matched up with what we were seeing on Google Maps, things like that, um, and gained entry to that first facility on Sunday, Sunday night to Monday morning. When we get into a place, it depends on it also depends on who who is attacking. Right. So if if Justin is attacking, for instance, and he gets into the door and he's able to get in really, really quick. There's, there's a certain, like, you know, like he's your teammate. So you're proud. You're like, wow, dude, that was really fast. Like that was really, really fast. Justin and I have been working together since he's been here. So you get to see this progression of somebody when he's on his first red team or second red team, I think it was, you know, with the guy. And then when he's on his, you know, 15th red team and you're like, dude, you're getting really, really, really good at this. Yeah. But you get to see that progression. So there's, there's, it's a lot more personal, if you will, when you're, when you're on a red team with somebody I, I, that you've been working with for years and was, years and years. I was going to say, I'm tearing up over here because Gary, <laughs> Gary me, honestly, like I do need to take a moment to thank him. Like Tommy, so much of what I know, like, yeah, of course, like deviant and like some huge stars in the industry that you can learn so much by watching YouTube and like learn how to uh, assess security of your facilities. But Gary was like the first guy who handed me the under the door tool and taught me how to use this one. I didn't even know which end of the stick to be holding on to, which is a very common thing when people are given an under the door tool. So they get in, they look around for ways to plug in a drone and to take any photos of security problems that they want to put in their report. They even found the desk of the person who hired them for this engagement. So they leave a little present on his desk to prove that they got in overnight and got access to his desk. Uh, but we had gained access and we left a calling card. I just left the business card on where the point of contact's desk to the point where the next day he had emailed me and said, I guess I owe you congratulations. Um, we're going back and forth over email. I'm like, yeah, I mean, we, we found some really severe vulnerabilities that, you know, yeah. minor fixes that you guys can use to dramatically improve the, uh, the security of this facility. So going back and forth through, through things like that. So already in contact with the client, going, going through things like that. And then, yeah, t- Tuesday rolls around. So it's Tuesday night after the courthouse has closed for the day. They get up to the building and see it has two sets of locked doors to get into. We make it to the first door really easy. And then the second door, we could have used the same attack, but we were trying other things. Right. And we weren't having a lot of luck with the other things, but we didn't really want to try the first attack because we wanted to see if we could use different techniques to get in. Right. 
we found other areas that we could attack. So we went around a different area and we were working on, Justin was working on one door and I was working on another. I don't know. Did you ever get that door open? Uh, pick the lock. It, like, Multiple. Yeah, yeah, like each way. And like, you know, there's something else was going on. There's a secondary uh, latching mechanism That we couldn't there. see or right. something. I ended up picking two doors in a row to a courtroom and then we ended up making it, making it in. Uh, and then we ended up, we ended up getting in. We saw the security, the security, uh, security cameras. Now, when they say they found the security cameras, what they mean is they found the room that you can sit in to watch all the security cameras and what's going on in the whole building. Uh, guard desk. It wasn't really a room. It just, they had all the security cameras at the guard desk, which was right, which was actually the sheriff's desk during the day that sits there. So they've got a sheriff that, or a deputy sheriff, right. that monitor or that's there on duty for the courthouse that sits in this, uh, it's almost like a eh, front desk. Yeah, almost, like front desk you know? type thing uh, uh, the, where, where, where receptionists would sit in a company. Uh, so the, the deputy sheriff sits there and has access to all these different cameras which show the courtrooms or office areas. And so at night when you've got your security guard there who isn't a deputy sheriff, they will also use those same cameras that the deputy sheriff only sits at to check the different offices to make sure that nobody's in there, the lights aren't on. Etc. So one of the first things they do is look at all the cameras to see if anyone was there. And they did, in fact, see someone in the building. Somebody was making their rounds, checking on the place. It looked like a security guard. They made sure to keep a close eye on him while sneaking around this building. And at the same time, they took careful notes on what blind spots there were with the security cameras. So when the guard got back, they could stay in those blind spots. As the guard went to a far end of the building, they started exploring around, looking for security problems and being careful to stay very quiet. And as the two of them wandered around this courthouse, they opened a door, which tripped an alarm. Suddenly, the doors were buzzing and the alarms were sounding. What had happened is they have, they basically have a holding room next to the courtroom and both doors lock in that room. So whether or not that is for criminals that, that are in there to see if that they can get released from jail or if it's for somebody that's accused of a crime, whatever, not sure what it's for, but both doors are locked. So because I didn't want to have to pick the door on the way on the way out in case it locked behind me, I propped it open. And because of the, the again, an assumption, because of the people that are carried there, they make sure that if that door is left open, that an alarm sounds. So when I made it through both doors and I went to the next room, which had the guard post in it, that's when I heard the alarm. And then we ended up figuring out, oh, it's because we propped one of the doors open. Let's close that, duh. They were able to complete their security assessment and get out of there. The guard never found them and maybe didn't even hear that alarm at all. But another successful mission for these two. But that was fun. No, it's a great yeah. time. I, we were we were pooping and snooping and we were dodging the security guards and he was looking at the cameras and we were hiding out stuff and that was good stuff. Mm-hmm. They got through the courthouse pretty quick, and the night was still young, so they decided to hit up a second courthouse that night. This one was actually the Dallas County Courthouse in Adel, Iowa. Let me describe the scene to you. The town of Adel is small. It has like 5,000 people living there at most. It's cute, though. It has like a historic Main Street, USA type of feel to it. In their downtown area, the roads are covered in like a red cobblestone brick, which gives it a more rustic feel. And all the buildings downtown look like they could all be historic buildings. And the most prominent building in all of Adele is the Dallas County Courthouse, their target. And it was built in 1902, which absolutely makes it historic. Three stories with those pointy spires on the top of each corner. 
And there's a large clock tower on top with a beautiful rotunda towering way up high over the whole town. This is their target to get into that historic courthouse in this sleepy little town in the middle of nowhere. So the two head on over to the courthouse. Well, we stopped and got the bomb burrito at the gas station. That's important. Yeah, that does come we up later. A, we did have a snack. Physically. <laughs> we did Literally. have a snack. We took like a 30-minute break and just hung out at the gas station talking to the, talking to the clerk nice that was guy. there. Yeah, he gave us free donuts. Yeah, he free donuts. Instead of throwing them out, he just gave us some free donuts. Yeah, so we had our break, which was literally, I mean, the gas station was across the street. Just from, about, yeah, just like about, almost yeah. across the street from the courthouse. So we sat there for 30 minutes. We kind of, you know, scoped the place out just to make sure that they, they didn't have some sort of um, patrol or something, you know, city cops or, or deputy sheriffs that were patrolling the courthouse. So we, uh, we, we parked at, at the courthouse. Oh, yeah. And we, I, again, we've got to get out of jail free card and, Every other time, like we don't have to be ultra sneaky, typically in situations like this where they just want to see if Joe Public can get in the building. Right. We, we don't have to be super sneaky. So this is one of those instances that if you look at the contract that we have, it specifically stated we were not allowed to bypass the alarm on this building. They did not want us to bypass the alarm in the conversation we had on the phone. Hey, guys. Don't circumvent the alarm. Don't bypass it. Just right. Don't don't degrade yeah. our security. Like don't right. disable a sensor so that anybody could go up, bypass the store and gain entry without an alarm going off. Right. Like so that that's a pretty common theme with a lot of our clients. Like we're not trying to degrade the security of their facility right. so we can gain access because it also allows potential for for other threat actors to to gain access um, covertly or without setting off alarms. Right. So in, in this instance, we walked up to the the north door. I think it was. Um, so we go up to this courthouse. We we jiggle the door like there's a real t- little technique that you just see to like if if latch doesn't engage um, and pop pop the door real quick. And much to my surprise, the door was open. At this point, it's like midnight. Why in the heck is the front door open on this historic courthouse with all the lights off inside? Freaky for sure. But Justin thought someone must have tried to close it at night and it just didn't shut all the way. Now, this courthouse has an alarm system because it's a historic courthouse building. So yeah, it should, right? When he opened the door, the alarm did not go off. So our our assumption was there was a fault setting in this alarm system for the front door. They armed it anyway. Again, this is our, our professional guess of what happened. Um, that they armed it anyway, even with that fault, or they armed it, it counts down, they go out, and they didn't close the door all the way, and then it armed anyway without that front door being fully closed. So when Justin grabbed that front door, he opened it, what, two or three inches? And the alarm didn't go off. And then I tried to bat, we had cloned from another building just to see if they had multi-building access. That didn't work, and it's kind of like, well... Should we give him the benefit of the doubt or should we just use this? And so we elected to basically close the front door and say, okay, well, let's start over. So they both stepped back outside. This time they closed the door all the way. It latches shut. This must have been a fluke for the door to be accidentally left open or something. So they wanted to break in properly. Now the door is locked and sealed properly. Okay, so they begin again. These two being masters at getting in through these doors, they have no trouble getting the door back open. Now, as they get this door open, 
they immediately hear the alarm is beeping. Right, just like in your, your home security system where you walk through the door and it starts beeping to let you know that you've got X amount of seconds to put in your code. Uh, before the alarm goes off, so it was beeping really loud. Yeah, and we, we already had an idea before that. We kind of expected that alarm to go off. So just, again, a little bit of a um, uh, um, uh, precursor to that. The other locations, nobody had showed up. Nobody responded. So we've been gaining access to government facilities without any alarms going off, without central dispatch showing up, without police presence showing up. So at this location, we're kind of coming up here. And we've been there throughout the day, and we had seen, like, the alarm panel said, okay, disabled. That night, it said, okay, arms. So we would expect it to go off. We're going, coming up to this facility hoping for once, this final facility, the alarm would go off at this location. So it, it was almost like, you know, bit, bittersweet, but like, good. Okay, great. The alarm's going, like, it's beeping at least once we once we go in there. At least it's armed. Right? Um, so, so eventually, the alarm counts down, um, and then it, it starts sounding. So very audible at this point. The entire downtown of Adele is going off, and you can hear the sounders going off. The sleepy town of Adele is now being woken by these alarms coming from their precious, historic, iconic courthouse building in the middle of town. So, so at, at that point, al- alarms are blaring throughout downtown. We decide to go up to the third floor. Um, so we're, we're very well aware at that point. It's very audible that the alarms have been activated. They've been tripped. And at this point, we go up to the third floor, get a vantage point, and hoping that police presence responds to, to the incident, to the, to the alarm going off. Because it's not uncommon. I've um, been in banks in the past literally 100 feet from a police station where they either were not paying for the service or wasn't connected or configured properly, where it didn't dial out and, and call police to respond to the incident. Anyway. So, so yeah, so, so it's not terribly uncommon for that to happen. So we go out to the third floor, get a vantage point, and at this point, for reporting purposes, um, hoping that police uh, respond to, to the alarms going off. At which point, you know, within, it was extremely quick response time, within five minutes, um, I think it was a sheriff's deputy had showed up to the scene and we, we see him and he's going around the building. Gary and I are conferring with each other. Okay, man, what's what's the next plan? What are we doing here? Like there are police like it, it's a very um, not a high stress situation, but you have to handle it professionally and properly. Otherwise, there, there always is risk in those types of situations. So we're discussing our game plan, what we want to do um, with within a short while, another couple minutes. We go out on the main floor and Gary's calling out commands. He's like, is there an officer in the building being very ver- verbal, um, trying trying to get in communication with police? Um, at, at that point, it didn't sound like anybody else was in the building. We didn't hear any doors opening or closing. So we start proceeding downstairs. As they go downstairs, they don't see anyone in the building. They don't hear anyone in the building. But they can tell there's a police officer right outside the door they came in on. They spot each other, and Justin and Gary come to the door. The officer, he's on the other side of the door. He was actually, uh, we found out afterwards, was not able to gain access inside the building. Uh, so we're communicating with him. He's like, so so what's up, fellas? And we're like, hey, man, like, we're, we're here testing security. Um, you, do, do you want to talk? Like, can I, can I open this door? Like, just keeping my hands static, not moving anything. And he's like, yep, go ahead, open the door. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to open up the door now. And so we push the crash bar. We walk outside, and we greet him. Um, at that point, just start conversing with them. Officer, we're here. We were hired by um, Iowa State Courts. We're assessing uh, security of uh, various government facilities, including this courthouse. We have documentation. This is all above ground. Would you like to see our paperwork? He responds, yes. Say, okay, it's it's in my back pocket. Do you mind if I make a move and, and, and pull that out of my pocket? Sure, go ahead. And then at that point, present our paperwork. 
Um, so from there, he asked for our IDs. Um, and, and at that point, I think somebody else had shown up right at that point. So they, they were escorting us. They had hunkered down with us while somebody else had taken the IDs and the paperwork away and started verifying our information. Yeah. And, and at some point, I think the sergeant even told us to relax because we were we were trying to be ultra careful and professional. And every time we wanted to move our hands, we're like, hey, is it all right? You, we OK to get our wallets? And at some point, he's like, hey, man, you guys can relax. We just want to verify that you're you're doing what you should be doing. You know, you guys can. You guys can you, you don't you don't have to be that paranoid. We 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 we're pretty sure that you know you're you're not doing anything nefarious here. And and they were ultra professional, like they yeah, handled themselves perfect. Uh, they were they were nice. They were professional. Like they were doing the whole you know Ronald Reagan trust but verify type thing. Like yeah, we're pretty sure you guys are on the up and up because you came out to us and and you did what you were supposed to do. But we're just going to make sure we're going to verify that you are really supposed to be here. Right. And so we we can't. You know, if nothing else, we can't thank the deputies enough because they were ultra professional and just really, really stand up. Agreed. Yeah. They immediately give the police their get out of jail free card. You don't want to mess around and lie to the police. You want to come clean because this is not someone you want to try to trick. This is not part of the scope. You want to tell them, look, we're here on official business. The paper has the names and phone numbers of the state employees that hired Cold Fire to do this penetration test. The police call the first number. No answer. They call the second number. That line was disconnected. They called the third number. Someone picks up. The police ask if they knew that these guys were trying to break in the courthouse. And they said, yeah, we're doing security testing. Those guys are supposed to be there. They're, they're testing the security of the courthouse. And this is, you know, my my of what happened because I'm not on that call there with them. They'd walked away a little bit from yeah. us. This is what the the sergeant, the deputy sheriff, who was a sergeant, told us. He yeah. spoke to our contact. He's like, well, this is what your contact said. Um, so they, they run our credentials. You know, everything comes back here from our names, and our driver's license. They do get a hold of our point of contacts. And they say, yes, these guys are here testing security. So at that point, um, the sergeant, the the guy in charge um, for or head 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 in charge, the for, ranking officer, ranking officer. Thank you. That's what I'm trying to get to. Had come back to us, handed us back our IDs, and he's like, "Guys, as far as I'm concerned, you guys should be good to go. Like everything's everything's all clear here." Um, so at that point, like things get really jovial. We're, we're laughing, joking around with the officers. They're asking us, "Man, this job's crazy. Like you guys breaking into buildings. Like how did, how does this go? Like how'd you get jobs like this? Like." How can we like test security? Like, you know, how do we get a job like that? Just as Gary and Justin were about to leave, another squad car pulls up. This one has sheriff written on the side. And the guy gets out and walks up. Uh, the, the sheriff shows up. He's visibly upset. Uh, from our perspective, the mood completely changed. So prior to him showing up, everybody was happy and smiling and we were there had to be eight deputies that responded all of us standing on the courthouse steps and then there was one city city of a adele officer there as well so there was at least nine people there including us it's not a lot going on yeah. in adele iowa so when, in the the, when the sheriff shows up all the smoking and joking stops right like just giant fun sponge walks in the room and everybody just stops talking just everything just goes silent and he walks up and he has some choice words to say to us that we didn't necessarily agree with, kind of talking down to us in a certain to respect, put it, to, put right? it mildly. to put it mildly, um, and basically tells us that we don't have authorization to do what we're doing. 
and asked us if we knew that. And we told him our perspective, which was, hey, we're under contract. We're working for these people. Uh, his response to that was, well, they don't own this courthouse. And I don't care if you're under contract. They don't own this courthouse. Whoa, what? The state doesn't own the courthouse? Uh, did they get authorization from someone who didn't have authorization to break in the building? Uh, I would start to get worried at this point. But Gary wasn't worried at all. Not, you don't know, because this has never happened before in history, as far as we know, or any of the other people that we know in the industry, it's never happened. Uh, People get taken away or they get held until situations resolve themselves. Not frequently, but it happens. So if that happened in this case, we were fine with that, you know, because we we know the the truth's going to come out. They're going to realize that we're actually working for a company and that we were really uh, contracted by the state. So, you know, worst case scenario, eh, we've got to spend an hour or two in a holding cell. Not that big a deal. Uh, The sheriff tells everybody that was there says, well, we're going to arrest these guys for trespassing, hold them. I'm going to go make a phone call. And so in our minds, he's going to go talk to our contacts. At least in my mind, that's what he was doing. Um, and in that time that he was gone, because he was gone for like a good 10 minutes, it felt like. Yeah, it seemed like it was. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, in that time he was gone, the mood went right back to what it was before he was there, which was everybody was asking us questions, asking us how we did stuff. What's the craziest thing we've ever seen or heard about in our line of work? Like it went right back to that. Uh, one of the officers was super interested in how we got in. So we showed him our tools. We showed him how we got in. Uh, we showed him the technique that we used. We, we troubleshot how we think that front door got left open. They gave us their ideas. We talked about um, card entry on, on what, why they originally couldn't get into the building. Uh, and it was, everything was just went back to normal. About 10 minutes later, again, what we're thinking, it, uh, yeah, he came back in and he was just like, uh, you need to arrest these guys for burglary. And all the sheriff or sheriff's deputies kind of just looked at each other. And the sheriff turned around and said, do I need to do it myself or something to that effect? I don't remember his exact words, but he said something like, do I need to do it myself? I told you guys to arrest burglary. And I don't, I don't know what Justin's, what, like who the, the sheriff or the deputy sheriff that was arrested, Justin, but the guy that grabbed me, he puts his hand on my shoulder. He says, Hey man, I'm really sorry about this. You're going to, you're going to, I think you know, something very, yeah, he goes, he goes, well. you turn around. I'm going to have to put these cuffs on you. And, right. and, and I totally and, understand. Like, yeah. okay, man, like I, I get it. Like see where you're coming from. Yeah, like, and this. both our responses were like, Hey man, it's okay. You're just doing your jobs. It's right. not a big deal. This won't be the last time this happens. I'm sure. And so both of them get handcuffed. They had their rights read to them and the police started escorting them away. But still, even though they now have handcuffs on and the police are escorting them, they still weren't nervous about the situation. No. I mean, because think about it from our perspective, like we have done nothing wrong. We have all the paper, all the paperwork in the world. Like I'm, I'm from Florida. Gary's from Seattle. It's not like we flew out to Adele, Iowa to start breaking into courthouses on our own behalf. Like we knew we had every shred of evidence in our favor. We knew that it was totally above ground. It's it's not totally uncommon for law enforcement to respond to incident. It, it does happen. It is extremely rare, I'd say, for somebody to get uh, detained or furthermore arrested. And that's as far as it had ever gone. And as far as our, we're aware, nobody's ever been actually formally arrested and pressed with charges. Yeah, charged. So, no one's ever been actually charged. Right. Yeah. right. So, I mean, we're, we're thinking, okay, we're going to go to this, down to the station. We'll work this out. Not a big deal. Now, because this is Adele, a small town, the jailhouse was literally across the street from the courthouse. 
So they both get walked to the jailhouse with handcuffs on. Stay tuned, because when we come back from the break, we'll hear what happens to Gary and Justin. Support for this episode comes from Oracle for Startups. I think I have to buy a new phone this week. This one I have is running out of space, and it's just too slow for my modern usage. But I wonder if startup companies have this same problem, where they start out with some cool new technology to run their business, but over time it starts to slow down, and their underlying architecture just can't handle big customers, large spikes, or the growth that they hope to have. How does a startup find technology that can grow with them? Well, Oracle has this startup partnership. It's cleverly called Oracle for Startups. The idea is even though you're a startup, you can tap into the cloud computing power, expertise, and connections of a big dog like Oracle. You get free cloud credits and 70% off their cloud services. Plus, with multi-cloud support and no vendor lock-in, you build this any way you want. Now you aren't frustrated and you've got the power to scale and you're free to go after your dream customers. Don't stay stuck. Go check out oracle.com slash go to slash darknet. Gary and Justin are now both at the jailhouse and they have been separated and the police are questioning them and processing them separately. That's when the aggravation started to kick in a little bit because we were going through the entire process, which is empty out all your pockets, give us all your gear, give us your backpacks. I don't know if you ever did, but I interacted with the sheriff a couple of times. I n- no, I never talked yeah, to the sheriff. Yeah, so I interacted with the sheriff a couple of times. Uh, and and it was like, hey, sheriff, are, are you just going to hold us or are you actually going to charge us? And uh, it was later discussed or during that conversation that I won't really go into because it'll just aggravate me, was, yes, we're going to charge you. There was multiple times I tried to... I don't want to say talk my way out of it. De-escalate. Right? Yeah. But yeah, that's a better term. De-escalate the situation like, hey, maybe maybe you could contact one of our, you know, one of our contacts. Talk to somebody at Iowa State Court. You know, talk to somebody because we're legitimately just working here, sir. Like, like, and, and we were ultra polite. There's multiple videos out there that show that I don't think we were ever unprofessional. We were just like, Hey, sir, you know, could, could you possibly do this or check with this person? Or maybe this is a big misunderstanding. And it was always met with, nope, you're going to jail. Nope, you're getting arrested. I mean, at some point along that process, it became very clear that regardless of any amount of paperwork that we would have had on us or anything matter. that we could have yep. said, there was something else going on. It, it yep. wasn't about that. Um, we had the paperwork. He had, like, the deputies already verified, cleared, identified us, but let us go, essentially. Mm-hmm. So despite all that, there were there was something else going on that regardless of what we could have said, done, or shown, there was, there was no getting out of an arrest at that yep. point. Like we're both being very professional throughout the entire process, um, but I'm, I'm a very big privacy advocate. And as we're going through this, um, they're asking, "What's your marital status? What's your highest level of education?" And I'm very understanding at this point. We're being wrongfully arrested because we're here for a job. This is something that needs to be drugged through a criminal process. At most, if there's contract discrepancies or issues with the state first county level, this is something that gets handled in a civil courtroom. Um, so at that point, I, I didn't want to provide my social security number. So it's not like we're resisting arrest or anything like that, but we're, we're unwilling to give up a lot of personal details at that point. 
which uh, a lot of people in, in the um, in the in the booking reception room, however you want to call it, got very upset with that. So so we we get um, you know we, we have to give up all of all of our tools, all of our gear. We go through the process explaining what these tools are because we're being booked not only for burglary but possession of burglary tools. So they want to have substantial evidence of us having tools that are used typically in burglary trade, but obviously in a secure setting at this point. They finally get to make some phone calls, but at this point it's like two a.m. Uh, I had about 30, but unfortunately <laughs> everybody was sleeping and no one would answer my call. Like, even my wife slept through all of the phone calls that I sent, all sorts of messages to people. The only person I was able to actually get a hold of was one of our contacts. And I said, Hey, are you aware that we're, where you got arrested? Yeah. Yeah. We're aware. Such and such told me, are you doing anything to get us out? And he said, he said, well, yeah, we're going to be there first thing in the morning. Uh, we, we're going to talk to X, Y, and Z. I don't remember who we said we're going to talk to, um, and, and we're going to we're going to smooth this all over. It's one big misunderstanding, you know. You'd think that, and I, I believe almost verbatim his thing was, "You think that the sheriff would be a little more understanding of what we're trying to do?" And I said, "Well, guess what? He's not." And uh, he said, "Yeah, I can see that. Uh, again, we'll be there first thing in the morning. We're, we're going to hammer this out." There's a lot more to that conversation, but that's the gist of it. Now, for me, my first call would have been to my boss. I would have called Coldfire right away and told them, hey, get some lawyers. We're in jail. We need help right now because they're operating in capacity of Coldfire. So Coldfire should be capable of helping them out. Yeah, and we tried to get a hold of Coldfire. We just couldn't get a hold of anybody just because of the late hour. And I think most people, when they sleep, they put their car, you know, they, they put their phone on vibrate because, again, we're talking about a scenario that has never happened before. So... Maybe you want to say some complacency, whatever you want to put in there. Who knows what it was, but most people are like, okay, you know, two or three in the morning, not really that big of a deal. You know, what? what's the worst that could happen? Well, we figured out what the worst that could happen was. Right. By 2.30 a.m., the police finish processing them and give them both orange jumpsuits to change into, the kind you see prisoners wear. And the police took all their belongings, even their shoes. Gary got a pair of Crocs. Justin got some sandals that were too small. And they were put in a cell for the night with other criminals and cellmates. They tried to lay down and sleep, but the beds were really hard and cold, so they didn't get much sleep that night. The next day, they had an appointment to see the judge in the very courthouse they broke into. So the officers escort them to the courthouse. When we were when we walked over there in the morning, although it was incredibly uncomfortable and embarrassing, uh, that we were over there literally shackles around you know the whole the whole around your wrists and then tied around your waist and then the the chain that goes from your wrist through your waist all the way to your ankles and then you're attached to the guy in front of you you know and you you do the you do the you know the, the what is it the railroad gang or whatever across yeah. the street with deputies in front of you and back of you and I was like you gotta be kidding me. We get over there, and and the whole time I'm thinking, I we just got to make it to nine in the morning. The state's going to be here. They're going to explain everything, and then the judge is going to be like, "This is silly. Like, why are you guys go ahead? Issue on your own recognizance. You can go home." So they get to the courthouse. They sit down in the courtroom and await their names to be called by the judge. And it boggles my mind still that this is the very courthouse that they broke into last night, and now they're sitting in the courthouse waiting to see the judge. I was first. Yes. And there was there was a gentleman that was sitting next to the sheriff. The sheriff was in the, the gallery, I guess you could say. 
and there was only one man standing next to him. And so my thought was good. That is the, the court representative from the state court, right? He's talking to the sheriff. They've talked about this. They realize this is just a big misunderstanding. Everything's going to be good. They're going to let us go is what's still playing in my mind. I sit there, I go in front of the judge and they ask your name and say, what's your name? My name is Gary D. Mercurio. You know, how much money you make? I make X amount of money. Um, who do you work for? I work for a company called Coal Fire. Uh, and, and so at that point, they decide whether or not you can qualify for uh, a Legal public defender, right? right? Public defender. She says, you do not qualify for a public defender. You know, would you like to defend yourself or would you rather get outside counsel? I'm like, I'm like, well, I'm hoping outside counsel isn't necessary because, ma'am, I believe this is just a big misunderstanding. So I launch into my reason why I think this is a misunderstanding. I explain to her what it is that we do, what we were doing that night, who we work for. And she looks at me and she says, you must think I'm stupid. And at that point, I'm like, oh, Lord, you've got to be kidding me. This is not happening. And she launches into this, I don't know, diatribe, like, yep. just like, I'm the biggest idiot that she has ever seen step in front of her in her entire life. Like, that is not the way that things happen. She is a state employee. She works for the state. If the state was doing this, she would know about it. And this is not the way that things happen at the state, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I just went from being hopeful to just seeing red. I was just irate. Keep in mind that both Gary and Justin barely slept the night before, and they're in these orange jumpsuits with shackles on. They aren't presenting themselves as best they could, given the situation. But when the judge said this to Gary, he couldn't believe it. He stood there, totally shocked. Tons of rebuttals are going through his head, but he wanted to be courteous, so all he could do is stand there and be quiet. But he was thinking things like, You are a judge. You're literally the... the point of your position is to be able to look at someone and have some semblance of an idea whether or not that person is telling the truth or not. And the only thing I can think of is you've been dealing with people and liars for so long, you can no longer tell the difference between somebody who is innocent and telling the truth wholeheartedly and somebody who is a liar. Which obviously he's not saying that to the judge, but that's going through no, both yeah, of our Obviously what we're thinking. The judge charged him with burglary and possession of burglary tools, then went on to say a bail is set for $5,000. Justin couldn't believe the judge was saying this either. Same deal. I'm like, like as not the person on front stage, but obviously still in the same boat. I'm like, oh, no, there's no way. Like, this is like a bad joke. You've got to be kidding me. Not, not a chance in hell. This is how this is going down. So I'm, I'm just kind of like sitting on, on the stand in awe. Like my jaw is dropped to the floor looking looking at the situation transpire in front of us. So there's still this gentleman sitting next to the sheriff. I'm like, okay. And I'm like, well, and again, internal monologue. Well, ha, joke on you, judge. This guy's from the state and he's going to explain everything. So this guy walks up next to me and says, excuse me, ma'am. I'm the county prosecutor and we think these guys are a flight risk. We would like to increase their bail. And I'm like, oh, Lord, like, are you kidding me? I literally start looking around the courtroom, looking for somebody else. I'm like, where is our state representation? They told us they were going to be here. Where are they? They were nowhere to be found. They told us they were going to show up. They ghosted us. 100% ghosted us. There was nobody there to defend Justin or Gary. 
the three contacts on their get out of jail free card did not come like they said they would. And this was just too soon for anyone from coal fire to be able to come down and help either. So they were just standing there completely baffled and irate that this was happening. And I will say at one point during this exchange, the judge is looking at Gary and she's like, you need to come up with a better story because nobody here is believing this to which Gary retorts, well, you should talk to the sheriff because the deputies last night had verified us. Everyone believed us until we're here sitting in front of this courtroom. Yep. He looks over at the sheriff and the sheriff is just kind of like... Just, he just smiled and shrugged. He didn't say anything. Again, in our minds, we're like, don't you have some sort of ethical responsibility right. to say, actually, man, we did verify with someone that worked for the state. However, we haven't fully confirmed that or sure. something of that yeah, nature. Anything. Not a word. Nothing. What a frustrating situation. Yes, they broke into the courthouse, but they had 100% permission to do so by the information officer, the director, and the head of infrastructure for the Iowa State Judicial Branch, the very state department that runs these courthouses. And then she read the address of where we broke in, and she realized that it was her courthouse in her courtroom. And she was mad. Irate. She was like, how dare you break into my courthouse and my courtroom at this address? And she just went off. And then she's like, bail is set for $50,000. And our bail originally was $5,000. Ten, ten times typical yeah, ten bail for burglary. Yeah. And that's just how much bail was set for Gary. So I, I go up shortly thereafter. I mean, that's pretty much the end of the exchange. I go up and same deal. I, I don't believe this. I'm like, well, we were authorized by the state to perform this testing. Like after seeing what Gary had gone through, I'm like, there's there's no point. Like, don't don't open your mouth and, and say something that could be potentially incriminating here. So I'm like, oh, OK, like we're we're going to we're going to do this, I suppose. Gary and I, again, trudged back across the street, back in our holding cells, where Gary has uh, cellmates uh, of a wide variety. But one <laughs> says to him, he's like, man, I can't believe that. You went up there as professional as could be, and she disrespected you. Yeah. Like, even the inmates just looked at us, and they were like, man, you guys are so innocent. Yeah. Like, like they, they, didn't, they didn't even have to listen to our story. They're like, just... The way you guys talk and the way you carry yourselves and the way you look, they're like, man, you don't look like you belong here. Like, what are you doing here? Justin's bail was also set for $50,000. So the way bail works in the U.S. is that you can either sit in jail until your court case or you can pay this amount to get out of jail and come back for court. At, at that point, we're facing felony uh, charges. Like we're facing uh, felony burglary charges and uh, felony uh, possession of burglary tools. So we're, we're in a criminal trial at that point. So, and, and looking at seven years in prison as well. Right. Seven. Right. Still, they hoped any moment their point of contacts would come and sort everything out. But the situation was becoming less hopeful. So Gary and Justin got some more phone calls and eventually got Coalfire on the phone and tell them everything. And Coalfire immediately started working to bail them out and to get help. And so about 20 hours after going to jail, the $100,000 in bail money came through and they were let go. At this point, it's Thursday, and the return flight is on Saturday. Oh, yeah. Coal Fire gave us permission. They're like, do whatever it takes. Get get out of that state. Like, come back home, boys. Oh, yeah. We, we, booked, we booked earlier flights. Both Gary and Justin go back home and get individual lawyers to help them with this. Something had gone terribly wrong, but they still weren't sure what. Why was nobody listening to reason here? Why are they even being blamed for this? This should be a contract dispute, not fall on these two guys. Felony charges? 
The local news ran a story. Two men arrested for breaking into the Dallas County Courthouse say they were hired to do it by the state. Justin Wynn and Gary DeMercrio are both now charged with third-degree burglary and possession of burglary tools. They were taken into custody around 12.30 Wednesday morning. As KCCI's Alex Schumann shows us now, the men say they were doing cybersecurity work. The state court administration says they did hire this company to test the security of their electronic records, but did not intend for them to physically break into the courthouse. Not many had yet heard what happened, but once they learned, people had plenty of opinion. They needed to be rested. You're going to try to break in, period. Lock them up. They're way key. I don't care. <laughs> well, that bystander they interviewed, I guess, didn't like them for some reason. But you might have caught in this news clip where they said the judicial branch did not intend for these two to break in. Well, the next few months of this ordeal were painful and grueling for many people involved. The news reports I read said they interviewed the state judicial branch, who claimed that they didn't know a physical assessment was going to happen. But then Coalfire outlined in the contract to show them that a physical assessment was approved. So then the state changed their mind and said, well, yeah, we knew that was happening, but this was happening outside the hours described in the contract. But then Coalfire said, we left a calling card on your desk overnight, and you emailed us saying, congratulations, why didn't you tell us to stop then? The state went on to say, okay, sure, but we didn't know you were going to break into courthouses. But yet again, Coalfire showed them the contract and showed them the exact locations of the addresses of each building intended to be tested, which included a few courthouses. Eventually, the state judicial branch ran out of fingers for pointing at Coalfire as the problem. But while that certainly fanned the flames of this problem, it wasn't the main fuel source. See, this was a county courthouse, and it was a state department that hired them. State and county are two different things. So the sheriff, judge, and county prosecutor were sticking with the story that the state had no authorization to conduct a physical penetration test on this building. This was the main crux of the issue. And if the county was not aware that this was going on, then they had to assume that Gary and Justin were actual criminals. If the state had no authorization to conduct these tests on this building, then it would be the same as if that gas station attendant across the street sort of paid them to go break in the building. So from the prosecutor's perspective, they thought these two guys were actual criminals. Well, so here, here's the caveat is after all this was said and done and we were bailed out, the state ordered a third party investigation into this scenario. There was a lawyer well, a, a law firm that performed the investigation. The final findings, which are, are public, the very end of those findings, that lawyer is looking at some sort of precedence, right? All laws based on a, a case before, right? That, that's where you get your legal precedence. Well, what was the, in, in a similar scenario, what was the judgment? Um, so because this has very little precedent associated with this, it's up for interpretation of the law. During this third-party investigation, that lawyer's interpretation of the law was the state had legal authority to authorize a test on county property because they are the tenants yeah. of that property. It's, it's their authority to protect that courthouse and administer security for it. Right, and the things within, within that courthouse. Right. But the prosecutors held their position. They started looking through the contracts to try to find anything that wasn't right, Justin and Gary both went back to work for Coal Fire during all this. 
but they weren't able to really focus that well. I mean, for one, they had long talks with lawyers and going over tons of evidence and documents with them. And this is hard to find time to do when you're typically spending a week at a client site doing a penetration test. And this news made its way around. So if Gary or Justin got on a call with a client to do a pen test, some clients wanted to hear the whole story about what happened in Iowa. And so it was just really distracting. And of course, they were arrested with felony charges. So like some clients have sensitive buildings and they do background checks on the penetration testers. But with felony charges, they weren't able to do these assignments. So they spent months battling this out with the prosecutors. And a lot of what I know about this story was through documents published by the Iowa State Courts. There was some great journalism work by Ars Technica, which got a lot of the documents and posted them publicly. And here is where I see the rules of engagements and the positions that the state took on various things and how they broke into different buildings. In fact, somebody even interviewed the Iowa senators to see what they had to say about this. Senator Amy Sinclair said, quote, The hiring of an outside company to break into the courthouse in September created significant danger, not only to the contractors, but to local law enforcement and members of the public, end quote. And also, Senator Zach Whiting had something to say. He said, quote, Essentially, a branch of government has contracted with a company to commit crimes, and this is very troubling. I want to find out who needs to be held accountable for this and how we can do that, end quote. So eventually, when the third-party investigation was complete, which said that the state had jurisdiction to hire a coal fire to run these tests, and the state point of contacts all approved that coal fire was hired to do it, all of this came together and was given to the county prosecutor. So all that comes to light, and eventually, I think it was a, a month after the uh, the state had, or sorry, the county had the opportunity to either drop charges or to continue pressing charges. At which point, they decided, um, okay, felony felony charges aren't aren't really relevant here, but we're going to drop this down to misdemeanor trespassing charges, which I think they expected us to immediately say, yep, yep, we're guilty, we'll we'll take that, which. Of course, from our perspective, we're legally hired for this job. Like, no chance in hell we're going to plead guilty to misdemeanor trespassing charges, even though it's essentially a, a traffic ticket violation or something similar at that point. We weren't, we weren't going to go along with that. So we're still fighting that. And that fight took place over the next four months. All sorts of fights between our lawyer and the prosecutor. Oh, constantly. To even get to the point where the prosecutor is like, okay, well, maybe we'll Maybe we'll drop it down to criminal trespass. Our, right. our lawyer was like, look, man, in order for there to be burglary, they have to have criminal intent to commit a felony after entry. These guys were working. There is no way that you can prove criminal intent. And so they did everything in their power. They're like, well, if they dropped a key logger on one of the systems, then we might be able to prove. I mean, they were they were grasping at straws to do anything and everything in their power to try to hopefully make that stick for some reason. And they knew at that point, they knew we were under contract. They knew that we were we were asked by the state to be in that courthouse. And they still were pushing for for these felony charges. These, and these class C felony charges with seven years of prison time behind it for I don't even, I still to this day have no idea why they kept pushing so hard for this stuff. Eventually, the Dallas County prosecutors in Iowa came to an understanding. And on January 30th, 2020, they dropped all charges against Gary and Justin. The case is now over and they're free men once again. But 
what still lingers is their criminal record still shows that they were arrested for burglary and were given felony charges. So th- so that's that's kind of like why we're so, so upset at this point. Like we're going to carry the rest of our lives. Like we have felony arrest records. Like even though charges are dismissed, like everything's been dropped at this point. Anytime we get pulled over, if we ever try to apply for a job in the future, uh, security clearances in any number of things, volunteer work. It's going to show we've been arrested on felony charges. So we've been stripped of rights with no due process on wrongful arrests. Yeah, it's a shame. Like any traffic stops these guys get, when the police look up their record, it's going to show that they were once arrested with felony charges. And anytime in the future where they're on a physical assessment and the cops come, they'll see that they have burglary charges on their record, which might make the cops think like, yeah, these are real burglars. Look at they have real charges. And any background checks that someone does on these two is going to show their criminal history. And I mean, what do you write when you're applying for a job and it asks you, have you ever been arrested? Like, what do you put? Yes, but it was wrongful. It doesn't sound fair to me. Big things, little things, like just, it just affected our lives for the last six months. Like, and honestly, like still will continue to do like, yeah, with the arrest charges, but man, just like. Honestly, I know I know a lot of people like say a lot of stuff. Oh, you know, damages. I'm so stressed out over this, and they want to do like a counter lawsuit. Like, no. Like, I think my physical brain chemistry has changed over this being so stressed out, and like I sound like a wimp about it. But man, like you wouldn't believe it until you're in it and going through something like this. How stressful and traumatic. I don't even want to use that term because I don't think like, but but it is like a traumatic experience to go through something like this and have it held over your head for such a long time when you know you're in the right. And then to see the legal system fail you repeatedly, there were so many opportunities and avenues for the county to understand or get more information and then drop the charges. And it just never happened. And, and I think that was the that's the biggest attractor from all of this. And the point that was so aggravating is so many times everybody had every opportunity to do the right thing and they just continually didn't. It, it was just it was. Like, for the lack of a better term, it was like I was flabbergasted, like to like old school, right? It's just how can you how can you do this to someone? You know, you know that we weren't there doing anything malicious. You know, we weren't actually breaking in to do to, to like create some sort of crime or, or to have some sort of crime. Like, you know, we were there doing our job. Why are you still pushing seven years of prison time? Why are you still pushing this time? And it's like they had absolutely no mindset for like lack of a better term or maybe it is the best term, like destroying two professionals who have absolutely sparkling clean records who've never even been in trouble for jaywalking before. And they're just like, oh, no, yeah, no, no big deal. You know, we'll just we'll just keep throwing these 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 class C felony charges at him. And yeah, you know, if we drop it later, you know, well, whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't affect us. It doesn't harm us. What do we care? And just, just like the, the, what do I want to say? Uh, the, like the lack of, of sympathy or empathy, empathy or professional yeah, sure. or whatever, you, whatever term you want to throw there just for like, just, and not even us, but just another human being. For like, doing what's right. Like if you're, you're representing the law, yeah. it's a failure of the legal yeah, like, system, which I had no idea America worked that way. It's like, just not the America that I was brought up in. Yeah. I thought like innocent until proven guilty. And just to see us stripped of so many <laughs> rights and to go through this, it was just right. such yeah. an awful experience to be like thrown into this mix it was terrible and that that was the hardest part was watching people do the wrong thing repeatedly and thinking it was not a big deal because to them it wasn't 
The only big deal was to us, but no one seemed to care. So even though the charges were dropped and they're free, there's no legal way for them to get a wrongful arrest removed from their records entirely. And their mugshots will forever be out there with arrest records and all. And I think what baffles me the most still is that these two guys were the ones who faced the most trouble, not coal fire. And I've said this before, how I always find it strange when the FBI charges individual hackers who conduct a hack on behalf of another country. So like hackers working for the Russian government or the Chinese government have been indicted. Why? They were just doing what they're told by their commanders or generals or leaders. Why not indict the commanders and generals or leaders or even the president? And this is a glaring example of why it makes no sense to go after the little foot soldier who are just doing what they're told. This really should have been a matter for Coal Fire, the company, to deal with. But instead, Gary and Justin got hit with the worst of it. Okay, it's been seven months since I published this episode, and I wanted to update this with some new information. Since this story went public, the security community took action. They realized the people of Adele, Iowa needed to understand the importance of physical penetration testing, so they organized a security meetup with the local people of the town just to explain what pen testing is. Deviant Olaf, Dave Kennedy, and John Strand were the organizers, and they brought a lawyer to explain the legalities of this and gave a few talks. Then there was a surprise visit from the sheriff himself. He wanted to come in and say a few words. This is what he had to say. I, I uh, very, very happy um, Sheriff Leonard has shown up and I asked him how he wanted me to introduce him to the group. And I'm not joking. He said, you can introduce me as the bad guy. <laughs> uh, so um, he has a great sense of humor. Um, so everybody, could you please give a round of applause for Sheriff Leonard? Well, first off, I'm sorry. I'm obviously the reason you're all here. So, but uh, I wanted to stop here and tell you that I have a lot of friends that do this for a living too. And uh, with Homeland Security and all those type of things and nothing but supportive of the industry. And it's not, there's just a whole lot of things that went into this that night that uh, we're still in question. So, you know, and I think I was talking earlier, getting a lot of hate mail and a lot of, a lot of stuff from the industry worldwide. I mean, London, everywhere. You're just getting, uh, how dare I do this? And, uh, you know, you got to look at it from law enforcement perspective for what we're responding to. You know, if you're telling me that this is a, we're just checking your response time. And I had five deputies running 140 miles an hour to get there. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't work well, because if one of your family members was T-boned by a deputy, you'd be mad especially when you found out it was a fake call or something like that. That common sense, that's bad business. So, you know, if somebody would have got killed on the road that night, those type of things. So, I mean, we just need to work better together. I don't know if this is a common thing, if this is all, you know, but there's a lot of things that we got to look at. The only reason, and, and the other thing, that those of you that do the job, I would never charge you with the crime and let it continue. I, I don't have the ability to dismiss it, but I can work with the county attorney and those type of things. But at the end of the day, if we choose, or if we believe that you truly needs to go away, it'll go away. But I guess I just wanted to stop and let you guys know that we do appreciate you and what you're doing. And it is a needed, what you do is very needed. I couldn't do it. I don't know how to do this stuff. And uh, I rely on you folks to help us. And uh, the two gentlemen that night, they're good guys. But uh, you got to understand that when you come here in rural Iowa, from Florida, you're from Seattle, Washington, chances of you coming back when I ask you to come back to answer questions are slim to none, I promise you that. 
So uh, we just, you know, I just met you. So you're not going to, there's a whole lot of questions that go into these things in the middle of the night that uh, we have to, we have to put all that together. So I just wanted to stop and tell you that there is no friction between, as far as I'm concerned, between us. Just asking that you kind of wait for it. We're not out to prosecute anybody. I would never charge any one of you with a crime if I didn't think it was valid. And, uh, and if it's proven down the road, and if we get through this investigation with all these other agencies and it needs to go away, I'll advocate for it to go away. I wouldn't want any one of you to have a criminal history that uh, you didn't deserve. So if I could recommend anything, it would be work with your local law enforcement when you're doing it. I would have helped. If I would have known about it, I'd have helped you do it. You know, I would have helped them uh, accomplish their mission you know, that night. So, and uh, we wouldn't have any of this problems. So, but uh, anyway. Sheriff Leonard was not happy with Justin and Gary testing the response times for his deputies and thought by holding them overnight, they could get some answers in the morning. But as it turns out, they thought they had authorization to test that building, but they actually didn't, which made things so much worse. The sheriff was interviewed by Wired Magazine about this story, and he told them that a law enforcement officer's brain goes right to bad. So when Gary and Justin handed him their get-out-of-jail-free card, he scrutinized it and saw that it didn't allow them to force open doors. And so the sheriff wasn't sure if using a homemade shim to open a door was forcing it open or not. So he needed to clear things up before letting them off the hook. And then he tried calling one of the numbers on the letter, but the person on the other side had no idea who Gary and Justin were. There seems to have been a lot of failures by many people in this case. Gary and Justin are still rattled from this whole experience. And now they are extra careful to double check the scope of what they're allowed to do before going on assignment. big thanks to our guests, Gary DiMercurio and Justin Wynn for sharing this story. You guys aren't strangers to trouble, so you'll probably get in trouble again, but better luck next time, eh? Hey, have you checked out the Darknet Diaries shop lately? New shirts keep coming in periodically, and they look sick. You have to take a look at these shirts and stickers there. Hats are going to be in there soon. Visit shop.darknetdiaries.com. And yes, I do ship worldwide. The show is made by me, the local ghost, Jack Recider, and our theme music is by the Chromatic Breakmaster Cylinder. And even though I have to re-update the keys on my license to hack every time I say it, this is Darknet Diaries.